you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, social dilemma. Facebook pausing plans for a kid version of Instagram as pressure mounts that the platform is too toxic to teens. We'll break down the fallout and what it means for the company's bottom line. Plus, lights out. Power problems plaguing China, forcing factories to shut down. How this could add even more pain to the global supply chain. And later, energy stocks in rally mode. The XLE ETF soaring 3.5% today. We will drill down on what is behind this big move. We start off with breaking news on the Fed and new fallout to that stock trading controversy. Let's get to Steve Leisman with all the details. Hi, Steve. Melissa, thank you. Two Federal Reserve presidents who were the subject of a conflict of interest controversy at the Fed announcing plans to retire today on the eve of Fed Chair Jay Powell's testimony before Congress. Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan saying he will retire October 8th. His financial disclosure showed multiple multi-million dollar trades throughout the year in individual stocks that some said created the appearance of a conflict of interest. Kaplan, who headed the bank for the past six years, insisted he did not violate the Fed's code of conduct. The former Goldman Sachs executive said, quote, the recent focus on my financial disclosure risks becoming a distraction to the Federal Reserve's execution of its monetary policy. Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren saying he would retire September 30th. Rosengren, he's headed the bank for the past 14 years, said he would step down for health reasons. He announced he is a candidate for a kidney transplant. He had planned to retire in June 2022. Disclosure forms showed Rosengren made 37 trades in REITs that owned mortgage-backed securities. Last year, the Fed was buying uh, billions of dollars of MBS. Powell may well face questions about these conflicts tomorrow, including his own ownership of individual municipal bonds, which he owned before before the Fed last year began buying munis. In his testimony, Powell will say that he sees upward pressure from supply bottlenecks. They've lasted longer than expected, and there is potential upside risk to inflation from these bottlenecks and other supply constraints. The Fed would respond to higher sustained inflation if it became a serious concern, Powell said, on the economy. He says he will say it's continued to strengthen and strong growth is expected in the second half of the year. In some industries, he said supply constraints may well restrain activity. Labor market conditions, he says, have continued to improve. Melissa? Steve, September 30 seems like a key date because that was a date by which uh, they pledged to sell their holdings. Is that correct? Yes, both Kaplan and Rosengren, in the wake of the controversy, announced they would sell their holdings and not trade as long as they were presidents of the Federal Reserve Banks. Tim, you have a question? Steve, it's Tim. Yeah, I, I guess the question really is, um, what's the sense within the ranks that there are others? It, it's been clear, the statement has been, there have been no infractions in violation of Fed policy. Powell has gone out of his way to say we have to evaluate Fed policy because the public trust is, is, is critical uh, to, to, to maintain. So um, what's the sense? Are there others stepping forward? Not that we've seen. We have reviewed um, 
I think all of the disclosure forms for this year, uh, we did not find anything that stood out as creating the appearance of conflict. Most of what other Fed officials own seemed to be in different mutual funds uh, and not in individual named uh, securities. Um, look, it's it, it's an argument or a debate as to whether or not Kaplan or Rosengren violated the code of conduct. Certainly, you could argue that they created the appearance of a conflict of interest, but the actual rules say they can't take stakes in financial companies, uh, things that uh, companies the Federal Reserve regulates, and can't trade in the blackout period, which is 10 days before until the evening of the second day of the Fed meeting. So those are the rules that are the letter of the law, whether or not the spirit of the law was violated. And the question becomes about two other folks, Fed Chair Jay Powell, owning municipal bonds before the Fed began buying them. Tom Barkin of Richmond owned corporate individual corporate bonds before the Fed started buying them. I'm sensing perhaps some less heat on both of those than on Powell and sorry, than on uh, Kaplan and on Rosengren. Steve, what's your sense um, of the optics of of this situation now that the two men who are at the center of the controversy are voluntarily stepping aside? I think it takes some immediate heat off of the Fed. Uh, Perhaps. Uh, I don't know that it solves the problem. Powell has uh, pledged to do a thorough review and revisit what the Code of Conduct says. Um, I think that the Fed and I think this is true of all aspects of power in America today. They face a crisis of confidence. Um, I think the Fed probably got caught with its Code of Conduct not changed while the Fed's monetary policy execution changed. Um, you know, I think Powell said it last week uh, mm -hmm. that, hey, uh, you know, any Fed official could own muni bonds because the Fed would never buy muni bonds. Well, guess what? The Fed started buying muni bonds. The Fed started buying corporate bonds uh, back in 08. Before 08, the Fed had never bought mortgage backed securities. So um, I think the execution and monetary policy changed. The Fed's code of conduct did not change. I think Powell's going to have to respond to that. I think the pressure is going to be on him to do a thorough look uh, to really answer Tim Seymour's question officially, which is were there any other trades that are at issue here? Um, and should the Fed dramatically change the trading policies that govern Federal Reserve officials? Steve, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Do you think that uh, Chairman Powell can put this behind him quickly enough so that it doesn't become an issue and whether or not uh, Biden names him to continue as chair? That's a great question. I don't know the extent to which Congress is going to make this into a major issue. We know there are elements of the progressive part of the Democratic Party that seem to want a different Fed chair for a whole host of reasons. They want him to focus more on climate change. Um, they want him to perhaps uh, uh, pursue a more wide open monetary policy than he's already pursued, even though I would say that policy has been relatively wide open. This could be a wedge. I would point out, Karen, that it's well, it's well, to, it's well to say that it's unclear that the extent to which Congress has a moral standing to, to wag its finger at the Fed. In some cases, they have conflicts that are much worse than anything at the Federal Reserve. Steve, great to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Steve, Steve Leisman. Um, I'll go to you, Guy. How big of a problem is this, if it is, in your view? I don't think it's a problem, uh, I mean, you know, in terms of what it's going to do to markets. But uh, let me, allow me to say this, you know, without getting too hyperbolic. We, we trust these men and women. We trust them because of their judgment and their ability to make smart, intelligent, well-thought-out decisions. And quite frankly, 
um, the fortunes of the next decade, 15, 20 years, ride on a lot of decisions they make. The fact that, again, I'm sure within the letter of the law, everything they did was fine. I get that part. But the fact that while they were uh, embracing and pushing the buttons for these trades, it didn't dawn on one of these guys or gals, quite frankly, that, hey, you know what? This might not pass a sniff test. It's legal. It's cool. It's within the bylaws, all those things. But maybe I shouldn't be doing this and maybe I should bring this up on my own. And maybe uh, we shouldn't be going down this avenue. The fact that that didn't just dawn on them immediately speaks to me in a lot of ways. You got to start questioning their judgment. I mean, it, because quite frankly, that would have been the first thing I thought of. So is it going to affect anything? No. But does it speak to a much bigger problem? Absolutely, yes. And, and I'll, just let me say this. I think everybody understands that I am no fan of the Federal Reserve. So it's important to get that out as well. Yeah, that's, that's true. But Karen's point, though, was a very cogent one, if I can use that word, in terms of how this could affect Powell and the reappointment of Powell. And that could, in turn, move the market, certainly, Dan. I don't know what you think about this. Yeah, no, I agree. If you think that the Fed and, and their policy is one of the most important inputs to just the price action that we see in, in U.S. equity markets and related assets, then any uncertainty about who that Fed chair is going to be and then all of these governors that are, seem to be resigning in droves, that's probably not great for markets in general, especially when, you know, people like Guy are out there saying that, that at some point, you know, there's going to be the, the Fed's painted themselves in a corner. This is not the sort of mess, I guess, that you would like to see a whole new cast of characters fixed. You'd like to see that they kind of they broke it. They kind of bought it here. Does this throw doubt on on the judgment of the Federal Reserve, Tim, especially as we enter this crucial period in which the taper may start as soon as November, when rates may start going higher, when we're exiting, you know, what has been the major driver of the markets? No, I, I don't think the Fed's judgment um, and this goes back to, again, the trust and the, 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 the commitment that, that, you know, look, uh, these folks have shown for not years, but decades in some cases, in, at least in, in the Boston Fed's case. So I, I think the judgment factor, we have to believe, is intact. The credibility of our Federal Reserve is not only crucial for our country, I think it's crucial for the world. The independence of the central bank is something else that I think we've worried a lot about over the last couple of years. Different issue, um, especially at a time when the Treasury Secretary used to run the Fed. Um, and it seems like there's a very cozy circle between Treasury and Federal Reserve and Washington, which I don't love. Um, and, and I think you have a case here where, uh, again, I think we want to believe that the, uh, the judgment factors never come into question. I think there are some people that are going to want to see those trades. I mean, how much money did they really make? Um, how good were those trades? I mean, I think those, those questions are going to come up still. Um, and I think they probably should. But I, I don't think the Federal Reserve's judgment is in question. And it's never been a more important time for us to understand that the Fed is some of the most talented people in the room uh, and are making decisions not by the seat of their pants. And they're being very thoughtful uh, and, and I think are, are, are not making decisions on a dime, which frustrates some people as they look at inflation. But I think the Fed is, is moving slowly. And I wonder if we'll ever get that answer in terms of how much do they make off the trades and, and when they I mean, we, we probably won't at this point, Karen, but full transparency may help when when you think. And, and I had joked with Steve Leisman when this story first broke that that knowing the direction of rates or having a sense of the direction of rates or, or how firm the Fed was and resolute the Fed is in terms of holding rates low. Those that's the keys 
those are the keys to the kingdom when it came to deciding what you would invest in of late. Sort of. I mean, if you look what happened, I thought the Fed was a little hawkish this time and uh, the market seemed to really like that. I don't know. So I think it's you're likely to have some inside knowledge, but not necessarily. I actually want to give all of them the benefit of the doubt that they did the right thing. I, do, I think that people who serve on the Fed really do a service. And I, I think that they could probably make more money doing something else would be my guess. Looking at Powell's own holdings, it looked like he owned not a significant position in munis that, what was he going to do, buy or sell or hold? I mean, he's under question. So I really don't think it should matter nearly as much as the massive job in front of them, which I think they've done a good job laying out, which is how do we get out of this? And I think they've done a good job telegraphing that we're going, we're going to start getting out. Well, that's it. Pivot now and get to today's market action. Yields moving higher once again today, and that move hitting some of the big cap tech names. Our next guest says this rate breakout is just getting started. Let's bring in Julian Emanuel, BTIG's chief equity and derivative strategist. Julian, great to see you once again. Um, I got to ask you about this news in, in, in the context of do you think this changes the likelihood that Powell is reappointed? And what would the market reaction be if Powell were not? The markets would likely be upset if Powell were not reappointed. And the issue here, Melissa, is that if you think about it, regardless of the, the largeness of, of what's happened here, is, is there going to be more or less political pressure on Jay Powell between now and the end of his term in February? And it's clearly the answer is going to be more. Uh, if you look at it, the last time there was significant political pressure on uh, Powell, was the fourth quarter of 2018. And they're not the same, but I would only say that what we saw last week from Jay Powell was the first time he's erred on the side of hawkishness since that fourth quarter of 2018. And frankly, it could be something that the margin that gets the Fed being perhaps even more aggressive than the markets thought. And from where we sit, uh, we don't think that uh, X of the rally of the last several days in the wake of Wednesday uh, that being more hawkish than the market wants or expects right now is going to serve stocks well in the near term. You were already calling for or expecting a 10 to 15 drop um, by mid-October, including the turbulence that we've recently seen, Julian's. At the margins, this could be additional pressure to that. And are rates the driver of this? Rates are very much the, the driver of this, Melissa. If you look at it, Part of the narrative is that positioning, for one, has been largely uh, you know, skewed towards high multiple growth. We've seen the Nasdaq outperform essentially almost direct, uh, directly since the last peak in yields at the end of March. But again, the Fed's uh, dialogue, and it's not just the Fed, the Central Bank of Norway, the Bank of England, are all telling you that rates need to go higher because inflation is a bigger problem than was perceived. And if you notice, that word transitory has largely disappeared in, in the last four or five days. And we think that that's intentional. We think there is a chance that you could uh, uh, certainly uh, test the highs at 175 and look for 2% uh, by year end. And that to us, above 175 in particular, is likely to cause market markets, uh, equity markets, to continue to feel uneasy and uh, there you get more pullback.
Hey, Julian, it's Dan. Um, so the last time that the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was at 175, the S&P was much lower. So I'm with you with your call. But let's just look at what's happened in the last week since we started to see this rate breakout. Um, yes, you've seen mega cap tech be a little soft, and that was the case in Q1, right, when rates were rising. But we've seen this rotation. Look what's happened with energy. Look what's happened with financials. Is that rotation enough to keep the major indices elevated? That's the problem that I have as I keep trying to short these moves. And and I think we could be in a one step forward, two step back. But I'm just wondering if the rotations are enough to keep the major indices levitating. So from our point of view, in the near term, likely no. In the longer term, yes. But again, you're looking at a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And and by the way, we are overweight, both energy and financials, and very encouraged by their action. Energy in particular is something that we could see could still rally another 20 or 30 percent. It's such a low weighting in the S&P 500 that the, the, the larger index could go sideways to lower. And you still get this performance in energy. But again, it's not enough to drive the, the upside in the index level. And the thing that concerns us, if you look at the last half hour of today's trading, the market basically sold off in that last half hour. The flows have been very consistent from the public for the balance of 2021. That's changed in the last couple of weeks and inflows are something that we need to sustain the upward bias. And that uh, is something that, again, has been missing. One week does not make a trend. But you look at today and it's not terribly encouraging in terms of what we expect over the near term. Julian, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Julian Emanuel, BTIG. Karen, in a scenario, if Julian is right, in which rates get to 2% by the end of the year and markets pull back, um, can financials still go higher? I think so. If rates get to 2% by the economy sort of, uh, you know, us getting past Delta, and the economy sort of picking up steam, maybe if there's some improvement on some of the supply chain issues, and that's why rates are at 2%, then I think that's good for financials. And so there'll be more room to run. Yeah, same question to you, Guy. What happens to the market, and what happens to the markets overall with rates at 2%? 10 to 15% doesn't sound Yeah, we talked bad. about this. So, no, we talked about this a while ago. And under this scenario, and I, this is the scenario I thought would play out. And, and today, for at least for today, it looks like it's happening. But again, 24 hours is not a day make. But, you know, I thought rates would get to 2% by the end of the year. I thought it would be great for banks, energy, and resources. But I thought it would be probably bad for the broader market because the S&P 500 cannot be driven by the groups I just talked about. So I think you'll see a sell-off in the S&P 500 if rates go to 2%. And I think you'll see banks, resources, energy continue to lead. Coming up, lights out. Power problems forcing factories to close in China. Apple and Tesla feeling the heat. We've got the full details next. And later, pressing pause. Facebook delaying plans for an Instagram for kids amid growing backlash over the app. We're trading the fallout. And later, a Best Buy bounce. We'll tell you what sent this retail stock soaring today. We've got all that and much more when Fast Money returns. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor.
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're following a developing story out of China. Regulators cracking down on energy consumption, causing major power outages in some parts of the country. And now names like Apple and Tesla are feeling the pinch. Let's get to Josh Lipton. has got the details. Hey, Josh. So, Melissa, our global supply chain is facing challenges, as we know. Now, here comes another possible one. Reports indicating that several Apple and Tesla, Tesla suppliers suspended some production in China for several days. That's as Chinese authorities imposed strict energy consumption policies. Apple and Tesla did not respond to requests for comment. But Reuters is saying that in response to tight coal supplies and toughening emission standards, suppliers like Unimicron Technology and Isan Precision suspended some production for a period. Analysts point out this situation is affecting a range of industries in China. It is not just electronics. Everything from steel to soybean to aluminum makers, they say, have been impacted. Brad Gasworth over at Wedbush says this represents, in his words, another threat emanating from China with the potential, he says, to disrupt the global economy. After all, Brad says, our global supply chain already faces challenges from chip shortages to COVID disruptions. And this is, he says, another possible one. I also did speak with Gene Munster over at Loop Ventures just about how Apple and Tesla investors should think about these headlines. Munster says this could ultimately delay demand for some of their products, though he bets not destroy that demand. Their customers, Munster is arguing, will ultimately wait for those products to become available. Melissa, back to you. All right, Josh, thanks so much, Josh Lipton. Um, Tim Seymour, how do you think about this, particularly as it affects resources like aluminum, cement, and steel? Well, look, the, the move in commodities is higher and, and coal prices in China are part of the problem that they're they're actually deferring a, a lot of projects that are coal related because it's actually too expensive now, leaving aside the emissions issues. But as I say all the time, you, you buy commodities not when they're cheap, you buy them when they're expensive. And, and that's where we're going. And, and lack of reinvestment in commodity supply chains and mining and capex and, and then opex um, is something that's coming around across the board. So I, I I think this continues. I think as far as Apple goes, um, we, we believed, and it's not in the price, uh, you know, that, that Apple, uh, this story is not in the price of Apple. That's, that, that should be concerning. And I say that because uh, I think the view was Apple can exact uh, the most out of the supply chain of almost anybody out there. And you know, look, I, I, as someone that uh, watched the move in Nike um, for slightly different reasons, but uh, similar reasons, just that production and supply chain shutdowns are what they are, whatever the cause is is something that I think uh, Apple investors need to be cautious about here. And as it's dancing around this 145 level, uh, it's got some key levels around 140. Um, I think there could be more pain here, even though I'm an Apple investor, not trader. Uh, and I think the news flow is actually ultimately very positive for Apple. It sets it up very well. I mean, these are some of the best companies in the world that manage the supply chains in the best way in the world. But there's only so much they can say to a utility in China who says we don't have the coal to fire up the plant to get electricity to your factory, Dan. 
Yeah, I think there's a couple things at play. I mean, this might be one attempt for the Chinese to hurt our U.S. multinationals, uh, for one. And then, two, I would say to Tim's point about not being in the stock, I think it's important to note that both Apple and Tesla both underperformed the Nasdaq and the S&P meaningfully this year. You know, even after Tesla's big run that it's had, you know, Apple's come in a little bit over the last month or so. So I think the bottlenecks and some of these supply chain issues are working their way into these names, or they have been um, throughout the course of the year. And I'll just say anecdotally, you know, you made that point about uh, what Gene Munster said, whether it's pushing off demand. You know, I tried to buy a $2,400 MacBook Pro the other day. It was not available for a month. So I ended up trading down to a, a computer that was $1,000 less. And then if you go and look at a lot of the iPhone 13s that just got launched, they're, they're shipping out maybe a month ahead of time or, or, or a little more lead time. So, um, you know, I would expect Q4 guidance on a lot of these tech companies that rely on those supply chains to be really murky when we get them in the next few weeks. Karen, I felt like like Gene Munster was channeling you when he talked about <laughs> a sale <laughs> delayed and not denied. Um, but at what point do, are you concerned that it might be denied? I mean, Dan was denied his $2,400 laptop. <laughs> Well, a lot of people would deny Dan something. I don't know that we should read in too much into that. But I think he was channeling you, too, this deny or delay. I think for things like, you know, the, 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 you know, the 13, somebody really wants one, they're going to wait and get it whenever, it whenever it is. I have also thought that for the autos. Um, I, I think we will see that just delayed. But um, to Tim's point, it, it, it does start to be problematic at some point, if, for no other reason than it's more expensive to make things when you have to wait and wait and wait for parts. If no other reason than that, and that's assuming all the, stale, the sales stay as they would have. So I think this is a bit of a problem for global GDP, but I am ultimately optimistic. Long, I am long Apple as well, Just, and I am still long GM, given their problems also. All right, um, we gotta get to a market flash here on scientific games. Contessa Brewer's got the story, Contessa. Well, they're selling off OpenBet. This is their platform that is uh, their, their tech platform, Melissa, selling it to Endeavor for $1 billion in cash and $200 million in Endeavor Class A common stock. Uh, Scientific Games, of course, is one of the big equipment makers and one of the platforms that the other uh, providers use nationwide. And there you're seeing it selling off for $1.2 billion We've seen this M&A happening in the tech part of the gaming industry. A lot of these providers want to have and own their own tech, so they're bringing it into house. And a lot of the others are maximizing their shareholder value, they say, by selling off OpenBet. Uh, they describe it as a leading global online sports betting technology company, OpenBet, to go to Endeavor. Melissa? Whoops. Contessa, if you can... <laughs> Hope nothing dropped on your foot. Um, if you could just sort of educate us in terms of what what exactly they're selling off. You mentioned it's used by other providers. Is it is it a backbone of sorts? Um, hold on, one second. Melissa. Just uh, we've got audio issues. Oh. I'm juggling a lot here at home. <laughs> okay, go can, ahead. Now I can hear you. Um, in terms of what what Scientific Games is selling, you mentioned that it, it's it's used by a lot of different providers, meaning a FanDuel and a DraftKings or I mean is it sort of a backbone? Yeah, of- it's it's a bit it's a business to business sports betting partner and it's global. They it's in the US, in the UK, in Australia. And so they say that OpenBet has 75 global customers including 24 sports books across 12 states and quote unquote a 100% uptime record across 
major sporting leagues. So, so just to put this into perspective again, all of these platforms have got to have the tech in order for people to go onto their mobile devices or their computer devices, or even in retail sports books, you got to have the tech to power this immediate bet in-game action. And Scientific Games has a lot of experience in terms of their online platforms and their actual physical game maker technology. And here selling it off for $1.2 billion to Endeavor right now. So they say that uh, Endeavor's gonna bring this um, the capability is an ideal complement to Endeavor, to the IMG Arena sports betting business that's coming from Endeavor. And then for, for scientific games, it's really about creating that value. All right. Contessa, thank you. Hope nothing broke. Contessa Brewer sure. uh, with the latest on that. Um, Guy, Guy, we often talk about the consumer interface of sports betting. We don't often talk about sort of the, the back end of it or the picks and shovels, if you will, um, of this space. Yeah. It's in... It's interesting. I mean, I remember actually an article about Endeavor. I think it was the middle of August or late August saying that all was, I think the headline is all not well at Endeavor and that uh, the CEO, I think his name is Mark Shapiro, told employees or a bunch of employees that their stock was basically worthless and he was going to make them whole. I'm paraphrasing, but that seems to ring a bell. With all that said, EDR is probably the play here. I don't see it in front of me, but my sense is the stock that closed probably mid-20s is probably significantly higher now. They're making a play, and then others are going to follow. So I think to your point, uh, this, is, this is what's happening. There's, a land, there's a, basically a land grab going on. It seems like they're the first ones to make a move. Bingo. EDR is up 8% after hours. Tim? Well, if you look at scientific, I mean, it's right. It's been part of this trend. I think the stock's up close to 150 percent year over year, uh, close to 100 percent year to date. And, and the fact that they're also taking advantage of this sweet spot as a shareholder, you have to love it. Um, but look, agree on all of these trends. It is a land grab. Um, it is a case where I, I think the, the margin inherent in this business is such uh, that the sales multiples are gaudy uh, at best and they're going to continue. But uh, being able to monetize and, and take advantage of really, I, I think, the sweet spot, I think, for investors in this company, it's a very good, you know, it's a great moment in time. All right. We've got a lot more ahead here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Posting on pause. Facebook halting its Instagram for kids plans as the app comes under fire. The social trade is next. Plus, time to fuel up. Oil pumping higher, hitting its highest level since July. So Paul Sankey is here to lay out the energy trade's next move. All that and more when Fast Money returns. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. Facebook pressing pause on its plan to create an Instagram for kids. The move comes amid mounting pressure that the platform is toxic to teens. Let's get to Julia Borson with the details. Julia. 
Well, Melissa, in the wake of that Wall Street Journal expose about Instagram's negative effect on teens and calls for Facebook to take action, Instagram chief Adam Mosseri defended the company's approach, saying there were many ways that Instagram actually helps teens, but he did put plans for Instagram kids on hold. Today, we want to talk about how we're going to put the work on pause. I still firmly believe that it's a good thing to build a version of Instagram that's designed to be safe for tweens. But we want to take the time to talk to parents and researchers and safety experts and get to more consensus about how to move forward. Amid bipartisan criticism of Facebook's response to the Wall Street Journal story, Senator Marsha Blackburn issuing a statement today saying, quote, Facebook's decision to pause Instagram kids is a step in the right direction, going on to say there is still much work to be done. Now, Facebook did say it will focus on teen safety and expanding parental supervision features for teens. The younger demographic is considered so valuable for Instagram. And Facebook has already lost its foothold with those younger users, so we can't expect Instagram to keep working on ways to keep those younger users engaged. Melissa? Julia, fill in the blanks, if you will. This move, this delay is good for blank. I think it's good for Instagram because I think at this point, with the kind of criticism it's facing, there's no way it could go forward with Instagram kids. They have to say, we hear the criticism, we hear the concern, we're going to make changes. I think it makes sense for them to work on this for the long term, but near term, they've got to get it right. The stakes are just too high, Melissa, particularly from a regulatory standpoint. Julia, thank you. Beautiful pool behind Julia. Julia Borston. Dan Nathan, same question to you or, or same, uh, I don't know what this, what it is. Fill in the blanks. All right, I'll answer that question. Is good for, okay, go ahead. It's good for kids. It's good for humanity. Uh, it's good. It, it, it was, this would be like lowering the, the age limit for um, kids being able to buy tobacco products. You know, I mean, I think that's really um, what's going on here. And I also think it's going on is that, you know, they're locked out of China, right? And they have two billion daily active users here and they need to grow. And we know that Instagram is a huge part of that growth. Um, so, you know, do you want to get kids hooked on these sorts of products, even on uh, a product where there's parental supervision? Of course you do, right? Like, so that's kind of the whole point here. I just think going back to that Wall Street Journal investigative series, they reported on leaked documents that we all knew. We all know this, right, about these products. They're very addictive. They're meant to be addictive. Um, so the idea of keeping them away from kids, I think, is, uh, makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. Karen, you know, what, what struck me in Julia's report is that, you know, this demographic, the, the tween demographic, is very important for Facebook. And here Facebook is, on its own, deciding that because of regulatory fears, regulatory scrutiny possibly, it's going to hit the pause button on this project, which previously, I assume, was was uh, believed to, to be profitable or, or be good for, for Facebook, the business. So does this concern you that even at the margins, Facebook is is constraining the way it grows because of the possible scrutiny it faces? They've had to do that, I think, multiple times over the last few years. At least, you know, this guy likes to say he hates everything about the company except the stock. And sort of buying this stock on the fallout, I think every single time in the last several years, has been the right thing to do. At some point, that won't be the case. But I don't think, we don't know what the pause button means. What is pause? When are they going to come out with it? To me, it sort of says, stop yelling at us. We'll just, you know, hibernate for a little bit. And I wouldn't be surprised if they come out with some slightly tweaked, tinkered, hopefully better product. But I wouldn't be surprised if they come out with it. And I also am really interested to see how the new Apple um, 
privacy policy affects them, whether or not it could even be a positive. Yep. Coming up, analysts saying Best Buy is really just that. We'll tell you what had them geeking out on this stock, plus oil pumping higher, hitting its highest level since July. Paul Sankey of Sankey Research joins us next to break down the energy trade. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back. CNBC's Delivering Alpha is just two days away. Join the biggest names in investing at this can't-miss virtual event. It's not too late to sign up. Register right now at DeliveringAlpha.com. Meantime, check out the Best, uh, Best Buy topping the tape today after Piper Sandler gave the tech retailer a major seal of approval, the company naming it a best idea, raising the price target to 150 bucks a share. That's about 40% upside from current levels. You can read, by the way, more about this call on CNBC.com slash pro. The stock is about 12% off its highs of the year. So what do you make of this, Tim? I like it. And, and total tech is something. It's not a new idea. I think the analyst is picking this up and saying, hey, look, this could be uh, 3% on comps, maybe 5 to 7%, I believe, was the analysis on EPS. And, and the other side of this is that this is a company that's never been run better in terms of inventory, in terms of loyalty, in terms of their digital presence uh, at a time when the share price or the valuation really is, is disconnected from that. And, and I think that's the call. That's what you have to believe also uh, on a relative basis to its peer group and to the S&P. But ten and a half times forward, the stock and we know it's been a stock that at times has gotten very cheap. But um, I like it here. I, I think this total tech is is a reason for people to be engaged with Best Buy returning to the store. But obviously, it's a recurring revenue stream. We all love that. Guy, do you see the runway to, uh, to uh, up 40 percent, 150 bucks? I do. And, you know, there's that. What does Louise Yamada say? The greater amount of time you stand in one place, the more chance you have to fly in outer space. Or plus she's, or isn't minus. that what she says? Yeah. Something like that? Something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. plus or minus. But plus or minus, the stock has been 110 plus or minus since last August. So to that point, it does feel like it has a runway. Go back to August 25th and look at the report they put up in terms of earnings. I think Telsa Advisory put a $150 price target. And to Tim's point, you, know, you put a 15 multiple on you know, the $10 or so they're going to earn, you get to that $150 level. So, yeah, I like this call. Coming up, we are digging into the energy breakout. Energy, the best performing sector today. So where next? Paul Sankey, Sankey Research, will join us to lay it out. Plus, <coughs> excuse me, options traders charging into Micron ahead of earnings tomorrow. Could there be more games ahead? Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Energy making a lightning move higher today. Crude oil hitting levels not seen since July. Let's drill down on the big move of the day with Paul Sankey of Sankey Research. He joins us on the Fast Line. Paul, great to have you with us. Hi, Melissa. I hope you're very well. Um, how, how sustainable is this move higher in your view? Well, the, the time of year is, is what makes it so difficult to judge that. Um, obviously, being in September with everyone worrying about upcoming winter, uh, it is going to be a big question about whether you know, over the next six months. But the themes here are all secular, you know, too much dependence on wind, not enough uh, investment in oil and gas production, and those are all sustainable. Mm-hmm. How, when, when we hear the news out of China, Paul, that um, power plants are, are curbing supply and they're shutting down, et cetera, because of the lack of coal, what, what does that tell us? I mean, if you can read between the lines, what does that tell us in terms of investment opportunity? Well, my, my, my uh, comment was to buy Peabody Coal, BTU, which we were saying a month ago. Um, you know, it's as, it's as crazy as that now with energy policy uh, leaving us so short um, fossil fuels, essentially, that you actually have to rotate back into coal. But obviously the big trade is in natural gas, and, uh, you know, the need for natural gas to offset wind is, is a much more secular 
uh, move in my view. Paul, it's Tim. Uh, interested to hear your view on OPEC spare capacity. It sounds like you think they may not have as much up their sleeve as they have in the past and that supply shortages uh, take us well into the middle part of next year. Exactly, Tim. We published on this on Sunday. Basically, if you look at uh, OPEC's production versus quotas, most of the countries are not meeting their quotas currently. And there's a very significant incentive to meet your quota, obviously, uh, and even exceed it because they're going to go through a renegotiation process on quotas. So no country would be voluntarily not meeting quota. But if you look at uh, the combination of Nigeria, Angola, Malaysia, Oman, and several others, it's about a million barrels a day short, and that is another reason why everything's ripping today. Paul, great to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye. Paul Sankey, Sankey Research. Guy Nami, what part of the energy complex do you like right now? Yeah, we talked about oil. Well, first of all, net gas has been on fire. I mean, we don't talk about it enough. We probably should. But oil services, I think, is breaking out to the upside. I mean, Tim can speak to this. Look at the move in Halliburton, Schlumberger today specifically. But over the last couple of weeks, these stocks are breaking out. And I don't think people, in my opinion, I don't think people fully understand how levered some of these names are and the potential for it to go higher. Dan gave us a great chart a few months ago, this 13-year crude chart that showed us touching to the penny crude oil on a 13-year downtrend. Well, guess what? We're precariously close to breaking through that. And if and when we do, I think these names have another 20 to 25 percent upside easy. Yeah, it was interesting to hear Paul, uh, Tim, talk about the reasons for the energy spike, all secular at this point. It's none of this OPEC sort of stuff, supply, demand, hurricanes, you know, what have you. It's secular. Well, the short term, and they're almost um, uh, almost incongruent kind of secular themes. In other words, um, let's not invest in carbon because we want EV and, and renewable to be the wave of the future. So, in fact, it pushes up their prices and makes the investors more interested in investing there. It makes sense. The secular trend, uh, I think, around companies, and I've said, this, I've said this so many times, but it's really important to understand oil companies are not doing that transaction, that M&A event mm-hmm. that was growth at all costs anymore. In fact, management teams, maybe most importantly, are incented to do accretive new deals. That's why you want to be an investor, not a trader. All right. We got some details just now from Janet Yellen's congressional testimony. Let's get back to Steve Leesman, who's got this. Steve. Thank you very much, Melissa. Uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will tell Congress tomorrow it is imperative for them to address the debt limit, saying America would default for the first time in history if the debt limit is not raised and the country would face a financial crisis and a recession as a result of not raising the debt limit. On the economy, Yellen will say that the U.S. is in the midst of a fragile but rapid recovery and the Delta variant is suppressing the speed of the recovery. Melissa? Steve, thanks. Steve Leesman keeping us posted on this. Um, Karen Feinerman, anything stand out to you? Well, I think every time we get to this, you know, there's always this fear. I really, it's it's uh, frustrating because ultimately they have to come to the solution and raise the debt ceiling. It's just how much pain will be caused in the interim. I, I don't feel this time is any different. I think it will be politics to the 12th hour and then probably beyond that a day or two, as we've seen in the past, which doesn't help anybody. It's very frustrating. All right, we've got some news here out of the Code Conference from Netflix's co-CEO, Ted Sarandos. Let's get back to Julia Borson with that. Julia. 
Melissa, Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarandos, the opening interview here at Code, sharing some new data on viewing numbers from Netflix's most popular shows. Bridgerton drawing 82 million accounts. Lupin and The Witcher both drawing 76 million accounts. So that is the number of accounts that watch the first two minutes of an episode, not necessarily the whole season, but still significant, meaningful numbers there. Ted Sarandos also taking a little bit of a subtle dig at Apple TV, saying that Netflix doesn't need a device because that devices are useless without them. Also saying that Apple TV Plus is a nice marketing platform for Apple. But he did say of competition, and I believe this was in reference mostly to Disney, he said, I have to take them seriously, referring to the competition. I don't ever want to underestimate them because they underestimated us. So, uh, Pretty meaningful there when you look at how much these media giants, Melissa, are now focusing on their streaming platforms. Bridgerton season one, according to a slide tweeted by Rich Greenfield, Julia, 625 million view hours in the first 28 days. It's a lot of Bridgerton. I mean, 625 million hours. It's a lot of Bridgerton and a lot of accounts. Yeah, and if you think about the fact that, you know, Netflix has over 200 million accounts, and if 82 million of them watch at least some of Bridgerton. That means the investments in content, the investments in these big deals with content creators like Shonda Rhimes, it seems like they're paying off. Yep. Julia, thank you. Julia Borson. Um, let's check out here as a micron. They're getting a nice boost today. The chip stock is now at 4% in the last week, heading into tomorrow's earnings. Often traders betting the gains are far from over. Mike Coe's got the action. Mike. Hey, yes, uh, we, we saw calls outpacing uh, their average by about 1.8 times today and outnumbering puts by about 2.4 times. The most active options that we saw were the 80 strike calls that expire at the end of the week, over 12,000 of those, and the second most active were the 75 strike calls, also expiring at the end of the week. Now, some of the 80s were actually institutional sellers, but the 75s were mostly buyers, and the options market is implying a move of about 5.5%, which is in line with the eight-quarter average of about 5.5%. So it seems that the institutional activity, for the most part, is targeting an implied move to the upside of somewhere between 3 and 6% by the end of this week. Dan, you saw this today. What do you think of Micron? Well, listen, I think that the stock is down 20% or so from its highs just a few months ago. And we think about all of the, the guidance that we've had, and they've had some difficulty with these bottlenecks. Um, and then that also comes into demand. I mean, the stock has been consolidating here. It makes sense to play for a balance. But I just don't think, again, going back to what we're going to hear for Q4 guidance from a lot of these companies, I think it's going to be as clear as mud. And I think the SMH could be one way, you know, on the flip side of that, to sell some of that against some of these semi-holdings that aren't NVIDIA, because NVIDIA is really keeping this entire ETF or this entire space levitating here. Your choice, Guy. Trade uh, Micron or, or trade a little Netflix and Bridgerton? <laughs> oh, I, do you know the answer to that? I, I don't know who <laughs> Mel Bridgman is or Bridgerton or any of those things, but Netflix finally broke out at about, you know, traded sideways mm-hmm. for about a year, finally got about $600, is pulled back. Netflix all day, every day. <laughs> Same to you, Karen. I'm trying to remember, what were the first two minutes of Bridgerton? My no guess idea. is... Probably a sex scene. I don't know. <laughs> kind of hot and heavy, right? Kind of hot and heavy when people went back and watched a lot. Oh, I don't know. Gosh. Uh, I'm going to go with the semis. Okay. okay. Tim? 
I, I, you know, why am I getting pulled in after the sex scene? And by the way, guy, that's Junior Bridgman, you remember. I, I, I have to say, I think it's Netflix. Um, and, you know, I have not been a Netflix bull. Um, but I, I, I think the dynamic here where they are starting to see some acceleration, they may finally make some money. The stock's had a pretty good move, but there's momentum behind their slate. And I, and I think there's more to go. All right. Mike Huff, you're still out there. Thank you. For more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, we got your final trades. It is time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Karen Feinerman. Yes, Melissa, this goes by fast this hour. So if this rotation is real, and I sort of think it is, then I want to stay short the IGB, which is those high flyer sort of pandemic stocks. And if multiples come in, they're going to get hurt the worst. IGB short. All right. Dan Nathan. Yeah, so Mike Ron, Mike highlighted those short dated calls. I'd look a little longer dated here if you want to play for a move uh, above that uptrend, uh, or excuse me, that downtrend that, uh, that might be about to break. It's a beautiful shot, by the way, Dan. You're at the Code Conference, right? Thank you, Mel. Yes. <laughs> Looking good, Dan. Um, Tim, by the way, we lost a shot, in case you're wondering. Guy, I know you were wondering where the heck is Tim. That's where he is. <laughs> so, is it up to me? I don't know about Bridgetown, but I will <laughs> tell you, Yellowstone is amazing. And I know Kevin Costner is a huge fan of Fast Money. Halliburton comes out HAL, Melms. I'm sure Mr. Costner is watching right now. <laughs> Thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.